0: This is Wessler Media. The following is a production of Wessler Media, distributed on the Evergreen Podcast Network, and it contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences.
1: The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland
2: is, is the rock and roll city Stop for sure. Yeah! Right?
1: Yeah! Like
3: no, was... The
2: Wrath of the Buzzer, WMMS.
0: Even. From Westlore Media, this is Profiles, a podcast about the people, places, ideas, and events that make Ohio. I'm your host, Vince Tornero. Welcome to part four of The Wrath of the Buzzard, our six-part series that documents the rise and fall of WMMS, the iconic Cleveland FM rock station that proved to be one of the most influential radio stations of all time. If you missed the first three episodes, we encourage you to catch up on those before listening to part four of our series. Our last episode ended with John Gorman and his team celebrating a monumental, albeit brief, victory. After one year, WMMS's ratings shot up, proving to station owner Milt Maltz that Progressive Rock had found an audience in Cleveland. But a flash in the pan will not keep Maltz happy. So what can the Buzzards do to keep their growing audience? They may not have known it then, but WMMS, through innovative merchandising, marketing, and concert promotion, were on its way to becoming more than just a rock station— they were about to become an institution in Cleveland. And the DJs of WMMS, who made careers out of playing rock music, they were becoming rock stars themselves.
4: I remember days when everything you wanted was downtown. And then came the 50s and 60s. And nobody came downtown. Places were closing. And then the rock concerts started. getting high with their own kind of music
5: rock and roll
0: here's john gorman operations manager from 71 to 86
5: one of the ways we get tied in with concerts was we would check around anybody doing a concert we said hey look we'll give you some free advertising if you put our call letters on the tickets and your advertising so just as wmrs presents Almost every concert listed, no matter who the promoter was, it was a WMMS Presents.
6: Ed Flash Ferrets, former morning show host and newsman. Every show that came into town, MMS here, MMS there, eventually billboards. That had a big, big role in solidifying the foundation of the station.
5: Our sales manager, Walt Tversky, gets a call from Jules Belkin. He wants to work out a deal that, His rock concerts are sponsored by WMMS. And he wanted some exclusivity because then that gave him an edge against the competition. We also did a deal with him that, well, for every concert that we promote, we want X number of free tickets to give away and for the staff. It was a good image for MMS. It gave Belkin some free advertising because it was, you know, we'd run additional mentions. Anytime we played the act, we're saying WMMS and Belkin. It was a win-win all the way around. Every, every ticket sold had WMMS's call at it. It was great promotion.
0: Friday, December the 22nd, the show sold
4: right out like that, and so they added a second show. Speaking of the other concerts, might as well tell you about the other shows from Belgian Productions and WMMS while we're if at it. If
7: you need to find out about uh, the who
6: ticket situation, you can always dial up our concert information phone line. Say <laughs> your
8: night.
4: Our concert Connection, WMMS, Cleveland.
0: The Buzzard lived up to its Concert Connection branding with regular shows in downtown Cleveland, whether it be the Coffee Break Concerts, Live at the Agora, or other events put on by the Belkins. But nothing, they ever topped the day-long shows WMMS put on throughout the 70s at Municipal Stadium, known as the World Series of Rock. Here's Michael Shesky former WMMS personality and author of Cleveland Radio Tales and Radio
9: Days. These were the days of the big stadium shows, okay? And Municipal Stadium in Cleveland held 80,000 people.
6: This was a great, great idea on behalf of the folks at MMS, John Gorman, Denny Sanders, the management and Belkin Productions. It's the mid-70s. Indians not going anywhere. We know we're not going to go to the World Series. So we created the World Series of Rock. And that was a home run. No, it was a grand slam. What we started doing was bringing all the major acts, Seeger, Rolling Stones, ELO, and they became day-long events. And it was sold out. You see everybody on the field, it was just packed.
1: The World Series of Rock at the old Municipal Stadium. Was you know amazing? You get eighty thousand kids inside the stadium.
0: That's music director
8: Shelly Style. Now here's former morning show host Jeff Kinsbach. Those World Series rock shows were just—they were just classic, just incredible. And you saw a little bit of everything happen at those. I got a great story here uh, during the Pink Floyd show, and it was a great concert, really was. But it's—it uh, went into the evening and they had all the lights on in the old stadium, you know? So here's this beautiful band, Pink Floyd, playing on stage, and the stadium is lit up. Well, there were these guys, they somehow climbed up the um, iron beams, and they were shimming across the uh, top of the uh, beams to each light and unscrewing them, And and they turned off every light in the stadium. The crowd loved him. They went nuts. A few years later, a guy comes up to me and he goes, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a um, ex-firefighter. That was me and my guys that did that. They were firemen. To this day, I wear my, I support firefighters (laughs) t-shirt.
9: When things get that big, sometimes they get out of control. And it was no, you know, it was not Belkin that did it. It was not uh, uh, certainly uh, the radio station's fault. It's just that you're dealing with 80,000 people, you know. And um, those were also days of a lot of booze and drugs and everything else. That was back in the day when you could bring a
8: cooler in, filled with whatever. I mean, it was crazy.
5: We used to watch the uh, concert from the press box. So... We're at the back of the stadium looking out at the entire crowd and facing the stage. But Murray would, every World Series, he would take a break and said, let me, I'm going to walk down to the crowd. And it was the most amazing thing. As Murray would enter the crowd, it would be like the Red Sea party. And people are just, Murray, right? All you're hearing is people shouting, get down, get down, get down, Murray, you know. Everybody was passing Murray joints and quaaludes and cocaine and you name it. And Murray would come back, and he would just dump all these things, and it was like he went trick-or-treating. You've come back from the Halloween of Halloweens, except it's all joints and quaaludes. (laughs) And he'd say, well, this is what they're doing out there.
8: (laughs) During the Rolling Stones, Jules Belkin came up to me backstage, and he says, "Uh, the Stones are gonna be a bit late. I need you to go up on stage and entertain the crowd. And he walked away. And I was like, okay. So I grabbed Flash and said, hey, we got to go up on stage and entertain the crowd. Um, the Stones are going to be late. So we're walking towards the stage and Flash is saying, God, what, you know, what are we going to talk about? And, and then Flash goes, oh, I know what we can talk about. The free clinic has an announcement of what you should not be taking that's going around at the concert. I said, okay, great. Okay, we'll play off that. That'll be great. And I passed this guy who's putting a fresh bag in the garbage can i grab the black trash bag it's a plastic trash bag i blow the bag up so it's really big looks like a big balloon so we go up on the stage and you look out across eighty thousand people and it's wall-to-wall people and you are walking on that stage and your eyes are scanning the crowd there's cutoffs there's halter tops there's guys with their shirts off there's beer, there's somebody spraying champagne all over the place. There's joints being passed around, you name it. It is a rock and roll crowd to the max. And it is as far as your eye can see. It's just, you know, it's a hot summer day and, and people are thoroughly enjoying themselves. And of course, plumes of smoke everywhere. So we go up on stage and the first thing i noticed was the young ladies in the halter tops <laughs> and flash starts making the announcements uh, uh if you're taking these green pills don't take any more or the don't take any blue pills or this is bad or that's bad and the free clinic tents are here and there and you know we're going through the whole routine of that and we're talking about upcoming shows that are coming and Uh, just kind of entertaining the crowd a little bit. Meanwhile, I'm still holding this bag. And we must have been up there for 10 or 15 minutes. Got the cue from backstage. Rolling Stones are here. They're going to be on stage in a few minutes. Crowd is, you know, going crazy. They're ready for the show and everything. And we start to walk off. And I walk back to the microphone and Flash comes back with me. And I go, oh, by the way, me and Flash found this bag of Colombian gold. I'm sure we're all on the honor system here. Whose bag is this? <laughs> the place went nuts. <laughs> so we threw the bag out into the uh, audience and uh, ran off stage.
5: <laughs> we built the station backwards. Most stations, you have a great morning drive and then you try to build the rest of the day for morning drive. We did it in reverse. We started from nights and moved backward. One day, June of 1973, I'm, I'm driving into Boston. I had a 105.7, which is a new station that signed on the air in suburban Boston, WVBF. And this is a this is this is a Friday night around seven o'clock, and all of a sudden I'm hearing the live version of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young "Southern Man." I say. Holy crap, this is good. And it's followed by uh, the MC5 kick out the jams with the F word edited. And I'm just hearing all this great music and this guy comes on and goes, oh, BLF Bash here, WVBF and uh, we're gonna play a song. A
4: BLF Bash right here. I'm gonna drop some more of these uh, musical pearls in my bash bucket and roll them around for your musical elucidation and uh sure this really tickle you blf
5: fans this guy is doing it right this guy has the energy but i didn't have i didn't have a radio station to hire him at but when i got to mms i did i wanted to hire him
3: well let me uh straighten my tie here
5: hi everybody this
3: is bill freeman uh you don't know who the hell that is Uh, better known as the blf bash well, I was the all-night phenomenon. Uh, nah, scratch that. You know, some of this shit you're going to really have to scratch. So I was the all-night guy at MMS uh, from 76 until 1998. I was born in Burbank. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I was always fascinated as a kid listening to radio, uh, all kinds of music. This was my criteria from when I was a kid. I wouldn't listen to anybody unless I felt they was having the time of their life on the radio. So I worked at WNAP and Indy for about six, seven months and then went to Boston. I played the Stooges and MC5. And of course, I was playing Deep Purple, you know, good, you know, Steppenwolf, all these good hard rock bands. So I was kind of known for being the hard rock guy. The All Night Bash... Got the biggest ratings anybody had ever gotten in Boston. John Gorman heard it, and he liked what I did. I didn't know who he was, you know, but I'd heard of MMS. By that time, MMS would always be mentioned in the billboard cash box magazines of doing this, of presenting this band. You know, when John approached me, you know, he called me, and uh, he says, well, why don't you come through here? Uh, we'll meet in the uh, press box for the uh, World Series of Rock and Roll featuring the Rolling Stones. You know, I hustled my ass to Cleveland, got there in time for the show. I told John, look, I'm making huge bucks there, but the station's going to degenerate within a year, probably going to go as close to disco as they can get. I said, you call me in a year, or I'll call you in a year. That's the way it worked out.
5: And he says, yeah, I'm tired of working. You know, they're changing the format and doing all this stuff. And. But I don't want to make personal appearances. I don't want to be on the I want to be knights. Well, all nights are the hardest position to fill. But you have an audience listening at night, especially back then. And so it was a deal.
3: Overnights, for probably 90% of uh, disc jockeys in those days, was uh, like being uh, sentenced to uh, you know, prison or uh, they died and went to hell or something. Me, I got into it because when I was a kid, I learned the baking trade. And then by the time I was working all night during high school, I'd have KFWB, KLA, the two big uh, rock and roll stations in LA at the time, the top 40 stations. And uh, it was a whole different animal, a whole different attitude. Once in a while, you get a disc jockey, uh, like after midnight, usually they'd work the midnight to six shift, that would just uh, open up. And uh, every once in a while, you'd hear a disc jockey who you really uh, got to feel that this guy really enjoys being on all night. Something interesting going on there. It's
1: 1155. This is Betty Corvin. Stay tuned right now for the BLF Bash. She's up next to open the after-hours join on the other side of this one.
9: Maggot brain every Saturday night for the guys coming home from the bars. You knew what time it was when you heard maggot brain
3: the real story on maggot brain i never engineered that you know i'm going to play maggot brain and this is going to be a sensation and this will be a part of the B.L.F. bash uh, i played that one time it had been played before all those albums had a paper on front where every time you played it this jockey initialed and put the date it was played. So that that way, if I played a song the night before and uh, Jeff Kinsbach came in and was gonna play uh, the same song, he would see that I had played it three hours before so he wouldn't play it. So we wouldn't be playing the same shit over and over. So uh, I had, you know, I saw that it had been played uh, numerous times in the past, you know, when it was out originally, but it hadn't been played for a while. So I put it on. And uh, the phones went apeshit. They got pissed off if I wouldn't play it. And I said, okay, we got little cult members here. uh, So that's the way cult members are. They're little spoiled brats. It's got to be this song or you're an asshole. You know what I mean? So anyway, I started playing it every Saturday night, but I played it. At 3.15 in the morning, I figured if these assholes want to, you know, want me to play that, you're going to have to stay up to 3.15. That's when I started playing at 3.15 in the morning. And then, uh, oh, about five, five years later, I decided, you know, I want to get this out of the way early. So I, I got it up to, I put it up to 1.30. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's the way that I got started. The first night I went on MMS and every night for 22 years, uh, I had the same attitude. We're going to have a good time. It's going to be high energy. But there was no way you was going to get tired being up all night. It was fun to listen to. That, that was the whole point for me. The whole point for me was big fun.
4: Two fifties a time as you gorge yourself musically with one of the real monsters at a monster music scene, the big BLF Bash at WMMS
6: 100.7 Music Marathon Station.
0: School's out from Alice Cooper. I think that sums up every senior's sentiment from Sandusky to Ashtabula and all the way past Canton, too.
5: 1974, we were on to something. 1975, we knew the course we were on was the right course. Initially, our biggest audience was at night. Our audience was high school seniors going to college, You know, you'd be in school in the daytime. At night, you're doing homework and you have the station on. So the last area to really tackled was morning drive.
0: Co-host Ed Flash ferrets on how the long-running
6: morning show began. The name Flash actually came from Denny Sanders. I started there in 1973, and they needed some help in the newsroom. MMS, I don't know. There was just something about it, something about it. I listened to it when I went to Cleveland State. In high school, I was listening. You saw where radio was going. It was FM. And uh, put my application in, two bucks an hour. And that following Monday, I was working. Before Flash
0: began working at WMMS, he was across the hallway at their sister station, WHKAM.
6: Now, it wasn't MMS. It was HK, but it was, you know, footsteps away. Denny Sanders was doing the morning show, six to 10 in the morning and it was what they called rip and read so he would come in the whk newsroom rip some copy off and then run in well since i was working there and i wanted to be at mms it made sense that i could put something together for denny and uh, one day i was on the phone too long i was trying to confirm uh, a story and I ran in at the last time, and Denny didn't have any opportunity to pre-read anything that I gave him. I mean, it was like seconds away. So I hand him all this. He goes, "Oh, you give this to me now? You just flash right in here? That's it? I'm gonna call you Flash." And uh, he kept talking about me, and it was so funny too because eventually people were asking, "Why is it Flash on the air?" And in 1974, John Chaffee was the program director. And I went to John Chaffee and I said, Um, you think I can go on this on the air? And he said, Well, give me a tape, give me a tape. So I gave him a tape. You know, consider, I mean, I'm 20 years old at the time. Was I ready? I up here, no, I wasn't ready. He listens to the tape, he goes, Holy crap, you sound really good. When can you start? <laughs> I started with Denny Sanders in the morning. Debbie Ullman came in. She got into a car accident. She couldn't come back. Then he moved to evenings, and they hired Charlie Kendall. 56. This is Charlie Kendall. Good morning. It's Wednesday. It is
4: hump day in Cleveland. So how's your hump day, Charles? Well, it's, uh, it's you know. Barely making it, huh? It's coming along. I'm doing the best I can.
6: I can Great uh, set of pipes. And he worked in Boston. John knew him in Boston. He became the music director right away, too. And we had Al Green before that with uh, Take Me to the River. Andy Fairweather Low gave us uh, Watch Out for La Buga Ruga." It- Charlie, um, like, you know, the, he had these music, uh, the the record reps would come in, and there were, they had unlimited budgets. You go out to lunch, you would be out there for a couple of hours, and at night, that you know, there would be groups coming in, and uh, Charlie just kind of fit into that real well, to the point where he fit into it too well. And often, he forgot to come in and do the show the following day.
4: Do this. I'll be right back.
6: Three minutes now before 7 o'clock. John Gorman would say, hey, we can't find Charlie. (laughs) He's not not answering his phone. So he said, okay, you want me to come in? Not a problem. Jeans and a t-shirt, put them on. Be there in 15, 20 minutes. Boom. So at 6.25, when I was coming on to do the news, Jeff would pop in.
8: We got to know each other off the air prior to being on the air. Flash worked uh, on WHK and sometimes would just run the audio console all night. And I was uh, playing music on MMS all night, filling in for somebody. There was kind of a few light bulbs that went off in
6: the station. And um, it was at that point that the, the management of the station said, you know what, I like the way you two sound together. And it was off to the races after that. When we finally got together, which was in uh, 76, it was we kind of had a conversation and said, "Okay,
8: let's see what we can do with this. We are different, but yet we are the same with our type of humor and with the way we like to present things. One thing that was really good about WMMS was it was the FM station to WHK. And WHK had this long heritage of being an AM station, and it had a lot of the um, the old music and sound effects packages that you just can't find anymore. But there were so many great drops of music and sound effects that you could use. That really were well produced, that were funny. Some of them were out of date, that even made them more funny. And I was able to use a lot of that. And Flash, Flash would bring a lot of great ideas to the table. He'd uh, he'd walk in in the morning and say, "I got our show for us." You know, you're not going to believe what happened. And you know, and and he had it. You know, it was right there. We didn't really care who got credit for it, as long as it benefited us. And as long as it was entertaining,
6: we knew that there was a great audience out there that embraced this station. And when we started working together, we had this opportunity to kind of sky's the limit. Let's have fun with this. The reason for that was because they left us alone. You have to look back in the 70s, and AM was still king, still king, fading, yes, but still king
0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC.
5: Cleveland became the first city in the country, the first market in the country where FM penetration exceeded AM.
6: MMS, well, of course, was the right place at the right time. We became the soundtrack of the city.
4: Hi, this is Wolf Goof, my Chupa Hapaloop of the Chick van. on WMMS
1: 101 FM on your dial, listening to it, getting right through it. It's the best, the greatest FM station of the world. Cleveland has a long background of being an incredible radio market. We're talking about Cleveland. Yeah! I'm talking about the city of rock and roll. Yeah! I'm talking about the place the rock and roll was discovered. 1951, Hillary Free rock and roll in Cleveland. And here we are. Alan Freed coined the word rock and roll.
3: This is Alan Freed.
4: Back in 1951 in Cleveland, we coined a phrase that became the biggest pop musical era in the world,
1: the words rock and roll. I don't know what it is about Northeastern Ohio that made it such an incredible radio market, but it was.
2: Let me hear everybody
1: say, yeah. 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 Let me say, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they can hear you. Let me hear you say, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
9: Cleveland radio was always a step above a lot of other stations around the country. People used to drive up with all their disc jockeys, listen to it on the radio and then drive home and say, this is what you should be doing. It was a harmonic convergence, you had a lot of young and up-and-coming talent with a brand new format. Really, it was only a few years old, and he had amazing music that was coming out.
8: in the Family Stone. That's
9: David Bowie. And we did Mock the Hoople doing Roll Away the Stone.
6: Led
4: Zeppelin Stone, Fleetwood Mac, and a uh, band called The Who, who you may have heard of. <laughs>
6: Cleveland was embracing rock and roll to the point like no other city could. We were selling more records per capita than any other city in the country. The, the folks in Cleveland needed something to embrace. And it was the music. It was the music. And then MMS had the people on the air that were passionate about the music. So there was that one-to-one connection. He says, hey, you got to listen to this track. I think you're going to like it. Boom. And then that record would sell. Here's Denny Sanders, personality at MMS from
0: 71
7: to 86. The audience began to trust us when it came to breaking music. They thought, well, if MMS is on it, there must be something valid about it.
5: We were listening to every album that was coming in, every single coming in. And another part, too, is we did everything we could to support local music. You know, people that grew up in Cleveland thought the Michael Stanley Band was that big everywhere. And they'd be shocked when they, you know, they go to Ohio State. And it's like, Michael, who? <laughs> Tomorrow,
4: same sort of day. Some hometown pride and joys, the Michael Stanley Band from 100.7.
1: W- we took chances. We had good ears in terms of listening to what was coming up. We were always figuring out what the community was listening to, what they liked.
7: Next it's
0: the Cleveland countdown show, the 20 biggest albums this week here in Northeast Ohio.
3: Posermania
1: grips the nation. Take off, hey, um, at the same time, uh, we made the choices of what new music was going to come on the air. I mean, I remember Leo playing Abba's uh, dancing queen. Now, In a million years, you'd never hear that on a rock and roll radio station. But, you know, if you think it's going to work, go for it.
7: We knew how far to push it to make sure that we didn't become too hip for the room. This is a very important point. You can be the most cutting edge radio station in the world, okay? But if you're only reaching aficionados, you're not going to have enough of an audience. So we always tried to strike a balance between playing some cutting edge stuff, but also making sure we had enough journey on there so that the kid at the gas station wouldn't change the station. And that's how you break
1: music. We were known to be the number one radio station in the country to break new music. I mean, people like Roxy Music broke out of Cleveland. Bowie broke out of Cleveland.
0: Here's Leo in a 1998 interview on the radio station.
4: Certain bands were identified with certain people. Now that's how actually uh, the claim to fame for Kid Leo was really the bands that I broke. That is how people came to uh, know me, uh, I, I think respect me, like me, because they liked the bands that I played for them.
0: Early 70s DJ Donna Halber.
1: I mean, people associate me with Rush, but we championed bands all the time. The sensational Alex Harvey band which kind of fits in the totally weird category, were popular in two cities, Los Angeles and Cleveland.
7: The other thing to remember when you break music to the masses is that they're always about six or eight months behind what you're trying to do. And you have to hang in. For example, when we first started to play David Bowie, we got all kinds of calls from people that said, we want to hear the Amon Brothers. Okay. And then about X amount of months later, we started to play Bruce Springsteen. Well, who's this guy? Where's David Bowie? And then a couple of years after that, we started to play the police. Well, who are these people? Where's Bruce Springsteen? So (laughs) the the audience, in, in many cases, and not always, but too often, will initially reject anything that's new. But once they hear it after a while and get used to it, then all of a sudden they fall in love with it. John
6: was brilliant when he'd go to record stores and check what was selling. And it was stuff that MMS was playing. And that's because MMS was breaking new music every day. You turn it in and, oh, we got this new album and Okay, we got this. We're going to premiere this. I
4: uh, got this thing here for you. It's, it's soon to be a collector's item. Well, it is right now. <laughs> you can't get it no place. But I'll tell you it's a good one if you want it. And you're the third caller at 578-101? You know what? It's
3: yours.
6: Boom, 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 boom. And it was It was infectious. They got up in the morning, they listened, you know, to Jeff and Flash. during lunchtime, they listened to Matt and definitely heard Leo on the way home and on the weekends, he we had, the weekend never ends. That was another ID that we played. That pretty much captured what the whole station was. MMS was the weekend that never ends. The weekend never ends on WMMS,
7: Cleveland.
5: This was a radio station that if we weren't in radio, this would be the radio station we listened to. Every day was an adventure at that radio station. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say there was never a dull moment there. It was this team and this excitement and everybody on the same page and everyone contributing we did sort of a, a rock version of A Christmas Carol.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, the premier performance of the WMMS Buzzard Theater of the
8: Year, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, adapted for the Buzzard Theater of you know, the Year. Instead Air, of like, Ebenezer
5: yeah. Scrooge, it was Iggy Scrooge, and it was played by Murray Saul and things like that.
2: Yes, that's old Scrooge, Iggy Scrooge. Shut
3: that tree!
4: Is the uh, oversized, overaged, and underhaired rock critic. That's huh? just old oh, screws. Christmas music! None of that! Just get out of here,
10: punk! What right have you to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be bummed out? You're loaded.
2: Yeah, and I'm rich, too. But what's Christmas to you? But, a time
5: but it was for- so for- well done that we knew we had the greatest team. We were the station that played together as well as worked <laughs> work together. you...
8: Yeah. Now I'll just close the window and I'll lock her
5: outside. <laughs> oh well,
4: so you're the people who listen to Betty Corbin, huh? Mr. Jeffkinsbach, just thought I'd uh, step in here for a few seconds and uh, kind of quiet down old Babs, who's uh, saying a lot of nasty things about me on the radio. Please, please. And <laughs> it serves her right. I locked her outside the window here on the twelfth floor. Oh.
1: All
4: right, oh, Hey, hey you, you, take a, you can take it. It was check.
1: awful cold out hey, there, hey, Kinsbach. Uh,
4: uh, what are you going to do, Betty? Kinsbach! Hey, come on, settle it. What are you going to do about it? I'm twice your size. Ah, uh, but... Uh, oh, wait a minute. I have if you secret. think that kung fu stuff is going to work uh, uh, on me... Oh, uh, uh, poor Jeff, poor Jeff. Oh. I
1: warned you, Jeff. Well, next Friday, baby Jeff, You should give up now, man. Remember, you can't play with a street-fighting man. Squirt. Or lady, is the case, maybe. Don't call me a squirt either. As freeform as it was on the air is exactly how freeform it was in general. You know, the 70s were one step away from the 60s. And so there was still that whole counterculture kind of ethic going on. We party, our, we party our, our asses off.
3: A nice, long, long party that'll take all weekend
1: to do. What happened at MMS stays at MMS. Otherwise, we'd all get arrested. have a little bit and pass a little bit and carry on. Oh, I know what's going on. It was managed chaos I it. I know it. is what it was. Blah, 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 too. Back in the day, there were a lot of drugs, and so everybody was doing a lot of drugs. It was just the way it was. I'm going to walk
3: around with a hundred dollar pill pinned to my lapel and a hundred gram bag in my pocket. Honor it. Treasure it. Oh, the gold and the red. Yes, 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 yes. Hallelujah.
0: Artist David Helton.
10: We all have our stories of party party and, and certainly Shelly could. Uh, Shelly could keep up with the rest. We could. I learned to keep up with the rest of them. Let me put it that way. In her world, she was uh, rocking and rolling. She was the music director of MMS. She was very good at her job, and uh, obviously. And I I don't want to reveal too much. It's none of my business to do that.
1: Here's an example. Use your imagination. Play the Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore East Whipping Post, and go hang out with your boyfriend for 20 minutes. None of us will ever run for public office. (laughs)
8: I guess you worked hard and you played hard. We all went to uh, Kent State for a Jethro Tull concert, and we were gonna go to Murray's for a a, kind of like a private meeting afterwards and just kind of party and have a good time, maybe throw around some ideas. Murray comes out on stage, he's stumbling. He's kind of wobbly a bit. It's like, oh my God, comes up to the microphone, the first thing out of his mouth. Kent, I love you. (laughs) And was like, oh no. Oh yes. So Murray is, you know, trying to introduce the band and he goes, you know, after the show, I'm having a party at my house and you're all invited. I love you. And he gives out his address. And we went to the party afterwards. It was like, you couldn't find a parking spot within three miles. The place was jammed. There were crowds in the streets. It was absolutely nuts and now (laughs) would you do that of course not (laughs) would i do that of course not (laughs) but it was chaos then there's music blaring from inside the house and i remember we somehow got ourselves in the house and um eventually found murray and he's just having the time of his life partying having a good time at one point the music went off and i see somebody carrying a speaker out the front door. I think they kind of picked them clean. Oh, hey, this is Murray Saul's house. I'm going to take an artifact, you know. (laughs) I'm going to take something to remember him with.
1: It was great. It was was managed lunacy, and it all came out perfectly well. Um, And as long as the station was making money, which it was, obviously we were doing something right.
5: The rules that I was given by Carl Hirsch who was the general manager for many years, were the rules that everybody had to abide by, which is get me ratings and don't lose the license. That, that, was, that was my job. And that's really what it came down to. So it means nobody drank inside the studio. FCC rules are you are not allowed alcohol. Uh, you know, you definitely can't smoke pot in the studio. <laughs> you want to smoke pot off to the roof. Usually if you say, hey, if you've seen somebody, they're on the roof, you know what they were doing. <laughs> That's one of the things that I promised Carl Hirsch. I'm not going to jeopardize the license. He gave me an incredible amount of freedom. With, with what we were able to get away with, we can keep a few rules in place.
4: By the time they got around to caring about us, we were making a lot of money for them, and they didn't know how. And so <laughs> that was an advantage because then they couldn't touch it. They couldn't radioize it. Right. They couldn't corporate culture it because they didn't understand it. And uh, that, that gave us really a chance to continue what we wanted to do because we were making a money.
1: Management didn't dictate to us. I remember one night we pulled all the commercials off the air in the middle of the night. It was April Fools. And we went into this, into the production studio and we made fake commercials and they were outrageous. And we ran them the whole next day.
4: J.D. Snotgrass knows there's nothing finer than getting into someone's pants and finding they're wearing a pair of denim underwear. I'll have one of these uh,
1: Nixon hot dogs. Oh, sure.
2: Hey! What's the dick?
1: Feeling completely feminine is refreshingly easy with Norforms, not a powder, not a spray. Norforms is just a little pill that you stick up your twat and get rid of that cut smell. with Pillsburger's new marijuana helper, there'll be enough of this Colombian to go around for everybody.
4: You're a genius.
1: There. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Pillsburger's new
2: marijuana helper from the makers of Angel Dust Cake. Joel Frensdorf in sales. We We didn't eliminate advertising on that day. We just interspersed some spoof spots. Coming to theaters everywhere. The most
4: devastating horror movie of our time. So realistic, it's shocking. So shocking, it's unreal. SGM Pictures presents... No parking.
1: George, I I can't seem to find a parking place anywhere.
4: The domino theory. The story of a major sugar company out to get their main competition, saccharin, banned from the market so they'll have it all themselves. Sweet deal, huh? John Wayne, as a diabetic president, doesn't agree. This I won't do.
2: April
4: Fool's.
2: We ended up eating some money on a couple of clients. Rick Case, he started Rick Case Honda in Akron in the early 70s. He had a distinctive voice. Hi, this is Rick Case. That's how he opened every commercial. Hi, this is
10: Rick Case. Because I bought out the entire factory inventory of several Kawasaki models, I can now sell you new Kawasaki motorcycles for less than other dealers pay for them. For example, Rick Case,
2: we call them Dick Face. Hi. This is
4: dick face. And I want to sell you a bike, any bike, any size, any shape. That's right. $49 for a Kabuki 750. And for another 2000, we'll show you how to put it together.
2: We didn't really sit down and have a meeting. Um, You know, Joel, we're going to do this to Rick Case. What do you think might happen? So when I heard the dick face spot, that came as a complete surprise to me.
4: Dick face, see me.
2: I want to sell you a bike. See any of our hundred fifty locations? Any
4: road, any town you find us, we'll be there. Dick face.
2: I didn't mind until he called up and said, "Cancel all my advertising."
1: The sales department went berserk, and the management went berserk, and we said, "Fuck you. We don't care." That's the kind of freedom we had. I said, "Rick,
2: no harm, no malice, no anything was meant by it." You're Just a colorful, lovable character that we have on this radio station. And, you know, our audience still is going to come to you. They're not going to remember this one day where we lampooned you. Please get over it. In a couple of weeks, he was back.
10: But if you still want to shop around, do it. Get your best deal. Bring it in, I'll beat it or give you the Kawasaki free. No payments till June with our easy finance plan at all Rick
4: Case Kawasaki Discount Cycle Centers. You tell him Rick, 9 minutes after 6, from MMS 609 the time, Jeff Kinsbach here.
5: Before we had the buzzin', right after I was hired John Chaffee said, uh, I can get this deal on t-shirts. So we did a couple of hundred of these T-shirts with the uh, mushroom, and they all sold out. And this is when MMS was really in no—this was pre buzzing But we didn't make money on it. We lost, we lost money because we didn't know merchandising and all that. But we became a button on everybody's radio. All of it just fell into place. You know, if people like what we're doing, they're going to put bumper stickers in their cars. They're going to wear buttons. They're going to do all these things. We have to have shirts, we have to have merchandising. That was a hard sell. We pitched Carl for, you know, quite a few months until he agreed to do a bumper sticker. He says, you know, that buzz is just your ego trip. Nobody's gonna put a bumper sticker in their car with, you know, with that bird and all that. I mean, no, nobody's that loyal to a radio station. David Helton's doing artwork for the station every week. that goes into the scene magazine or goes into the plane dealer. He's also doing a T-shirt quarterly. Every every bumper sticker that came out was just slightly different than the one before. If somebody looked at an old bumper sticker and knew and said, like, "Oh, it's a little different size. Oh, it's a little different color. Oh, the buzzard looks a little different." We were the only radio station in the world that had an, a full-time artist,
10: John and and uh, Denny and Leo, especially. They included me as part of the staff, which was unusual. You
9: had David Helton, who created the buzzard which was the Mickey Mouse of Cleveland. I mean, I had little nephews, you know, they, they, they knew the buzzer, they, they knew it was a radio station, they knew it was something important. They were like three and four years old.
10: Dan Garfinkel, the promotion director, uh, Dan was the original promotion director that brought so much to the station. He was my partner in promotion. I was his partner in promotion. I helped him as much as I helped John.
5: Dan Garfinkel and Jim Hutchison were incredible promotion directors. He lived in the apartment across from Murray Saul. That's where we got Dan. And when Dan took over the merchandising, we started getting our T-shirts in department stores. The first T-shirt sold out. We did another run. They sold out. We did a third run of long sleeves in the winter. That sold out. Then we started saying, let's do a T-shirt a season. Those T-shirts were like cigarettes in prison. Everybody
9: wanted one. I remember seeing an MMS T-shirt on Saturday Night Live. I remember seeing Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys jogging you in know, a, in, a, in a t-shirt.
5: That was the kind of merchandising we would do. And then it was like, don't stop with t-shirts and bumper stickers, let's do anything. Let's put the buzz on anything we can do.
4: T-shirts, bumper stickers, posters The WMMS Buzzard sportswear is here T-shirts, muscle tees And the new MMS embroidered golf shirt The
3: limited edition WUAB WMMS
4: Space shirts are now available The all new Buzzard stick pins, they are here Buzzard stick pins, make ideal gifts And you can stick somebody in the rear end too, like that
10: We did thermoses, we did T-shirts, hats. Oh, we did
9: a, a numerous things. WMS had a promotion where they handed out clips—not Roach clips, but you could use it for anything. You could hang clothes with them. Come on, I'm not stupid. I know what this thing is.
1: We had a WMS Roach clip. You know that I, I still have one. I must admit, at first I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a keychain. What do I know?
9: Everybody wanted a piece of MMS, and after a while there was a lot of bootleg stuff coming out. So they came out with these buzzard banks and they were actually very nicely done, but they were not licensed by WMMS.
10: We were out to lunch one day and there was a, a novelty store or something up on Prospect and we saw it in the window, the buzzard. And we screeched on the brakes, went in and asked. The, the guy says, I don't know, this guy came in here with them. We really liked them, so we bought them. We produced a lot of stuff with a buzzard, but we didn't do those. We're trying to stop the bootleggers and they wanted them evidently to be sanctioned by us. So these people come up
9: and they said, listen, we got these banks. We'd like to market them through WMS. And boom said, yeah, bring them all in, bring the mold in too. So we could take a look at it. So they bring them in and you know, there's dozens of these things all over the floor. They they think, Oh boy, we're about to make a lot of money. Boom says, can I have one of these? And they said, sure. He put it aside, comes back with a baseball bat, smashes every one of these banks points the bat at the guy and he says, next time it's you.
5: The first advertising that MMS had, it was trade. It was like an underground newspaper or like Scene Magazine or something. Okay, we'll we'll run commercials for you and give us a half page or a full page ad. But when we finally were getting money in, we could afford finally to buy a TV spot and buy a billboard and things like that.
10: MMS came to me and wanted me to do a commercial of some kind. Can you do a commercial? And I I said, yeah, I can.
5: The first few animated spots were done in his living room on the floor, cell by cell, the old-fashioned way that they did it back in the 30s and 40s. So everything was homegrown.
10: I really did. I drew and animated all of the drawings and everything. And then I had a couple of friends help me with inking and painting and photographing it. And then, of course, uh, Jeff Kinsbach uh, produced all of the uh, 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 audio for them. But, uh, the yeah, I did all those commercials.
1: Greetings from the home of the buzzard. Open your ears and minds
6: and follow me. WMMS 101
5: FM. The first TV yet was actually Murray Saul, which we taped at the world first World Series of Rock. The second one was the animation. And the, the Murray Saul was... The, that was quickly put together. And, I mean, that that, that was an incredible spot.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Murray It is the weekend! And we're going to boogie,
4: go crazy, go not!
5: You know, Murray had that incredible voice. And he was a character, just the way he looked. And I thought of, wouldn't it be amazing that a person who was the age of much of our audience's parents. Imagine a 50-year-old man coming on stage and the whole crowd, 88,000 people, like,
2: get down, get down. (laughs) We got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. Get down!
4: WMMS 101FM.
5: I wanted our air staff, I wanted everybody on the air to be as popular as the music we were playing. Most radio stations, you knew who the morning guy was maybe, but you didn't know the rest of the staff. And I wanted to make sure that everybody, from Bash all night, to Jeff and Flash in the morning, to you know Matt the Cat Middays, Kid, kid Leo in the afternoon, every one of them had fans. Every one of them, everybody knew what they looked like. Everybody knew who they were. Everybody respected them. That They all had their own personalities. Nobody sounded alike on that station. Everybody had their own persona. So when, when, you know, when our people were making personal appearances, they sold out the club. You know, I mean, I looked at those disc jockeys as rock stars in their own right.
1: We knew we were something special. We absolutely knew it.
8: We would do uh, what we'd call uh, Jeff and Flash Night Out. We'd do them at the Agora, the Mining Company, uh, all sorts of different clubs, and we would do toga parties. We would host bands. We were at Tangiers, and oh, their free taco butter was awesome. And we just did all sorts of stuff. I
10: started making personal appearances. I started drawing quick buzzard sketches in the record department at Macy's or at record stores or at audio stores. And, and they, would, they would book me to spend three hours to draw buzzards. That people would line up to get quick sketches with their name on it. And I would do these two or three or four minute sketches and people were lined up out the door. I felt like I,
6: I was really contributing something great we would go into a high school and it would be like Beatlemania. Kids would be screaming, oh,
5: my God, it's Jeff and Flash.
6: Blah <laughs> blah. It was just, it was like, uh, you know, like you never thought it was going to be like that.
5: Everybody became known, you know, if Jeff and Flash or Kid Leo, everybody's walking down the street, it's like, hey, you're Kid Leo.
1: Kid Leo, love you, love your hairspray. Keep on rocking.
4: That ain't hairspray, it's oil and lube. Greased up and slick, I'm raring to go. This is Kid Leo.
5: That was a boost to them. And that was also showing what we were doing was right. Sometimes the fans would say, hey, you know, I like this thing you're doing or I don't like this thing you're doing. And it was research from the street. All of that was valuable.
1: I don't think there'll ever, ever be a radio station that could garner so much support from the community. Um, If you were in Cleveland on a Friday night when Murray was doing his, his get down, you could be on the street and every car... That went by had
2: murray on it was one thing where he was incognito behind a microphone once those tv commercials hit that was it now everybody knows what murray saw looks like you might not recognize the voice but you you can't miss that face i mean he was one of a kind a guy called me up
8: and he said I just got to tell you the story. I was uh, on my way to Worcester and I was hitchhiking and this uh, Chevy pulls over and uh, the guy says, uh, hey, um, you know, hop in. And he says, you know, I wasn't in the car a minute or two. And the guy says, I hope you don't mind, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna smoke this joint. It was Murray Saul. And, <laughs> and he says, Murray Saul picked me up hitchhiking and I smoked a joint with Murray Saul. And he was like, man, this made
2: my life. We had an event with Freddie Mercury, who was supposed to come to Record Revolution on Coventry. So we, we get there, and um, we got there before Freddie Mercury. And people were gathered for Freddie Mercury, but there's Murray. And they all went nuts over Murray. So when Freddie Mercury got there, he wouldn't get out of the car. He goes, who is this guy that's upstaging me? Murray stole the show from Freddie Mercury that day. There was a time that he um, double
8: parked on Carnegie Avenue and ran into a liquor store to buy a bottle of gin or something. You know, he goes in and the guy behind the uh, and there were a bunch of people in there. Guy behind the counter goes, oh, my God, it's the
2: get down, man. (laughs) You know, and they're like, hey, it's Murray. Saw." we would be eating lunch. And people are walking up to the table going, Murray, get down, get down. And it started to annoy him a bunch. So here's Murray Saul. This is an interview
0: on Case Western University's WRUW. And you did,
3: and
8: you did the gig from what, 74 to 77?
3: Well, it really, roughly? It really, the big the the years were 75 Amazing. into all of 76. Okay. The way I like to, to remember the demise of it was that as I would be out in public, the people who would look at me and say, get down, kept getting younger. And, and, <laughs> and, and when it was the
4: ten-year-olds, it was old. <laughs> and there you go. You,
3: you are not going to be hip that
4: way. That was Mr. Murray's all. Well, all afternoon long, we started out taking, uh, well, it started with Jeff Kinsbach with his most outstanding man and woman of 76. So we thought we'd uh, pull up a, a little ass of the year contest, and uh, <laughs> politicians has got the most votes. However, that that was that's another category. And two individuals are right here. Yours truly, Kid Leo, and this man called Murray Saul. How you doing, Murray? Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, the official tally is here. Hey, Murray. Hey. You lose. Ah. Yeah, I thought I had a cuter ass than you anyway, you know.
3: (laughs) It's wonderful, whatever that is. I'm so excited about everything that's
4: happening. Uh, Listen, why don't you uh, spread your stuff out there and, uh, you know, cop a little, uh, show them a little bit of the the number two ass of okay? All right. Uh, this is number one, though, I guess. uh, I I don't know how to take that, you know. I don't know either. We'll talk to you later. Later when we're both straight. All right. (laughs) Mm, man, uh. Uh, happy, New Year to him. happy New Year to you, Happy New
3: Year to you, too.
0: We're having a party here. While 1976 could be defined with the words get down, the ratings of WMMS could be described with the words going up. But if the station gets to number one, how do they stay there? And what can the city of Cleveland gain when a number one radio station decides to put all of its weight behind a movement? All of that and more on the next episode of Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard. We're
2: out of that 1976. What an exciting
4: roller coaster ride it was! More shell shock rock from WMMS. Got my mind on
0: summertime cruising with the buzzer This season of Profiles is titled The Wrath of the Buzzer and is a Westler media production. I'm Vince Tornero, host, executive producer, and interviewer, along with my dedicated producer and co-writer Kevin Skubak. He edited, arranged, sound design, and mixed this series, as well as recorded what he calls Needle Drop Knockoffs for this production. Big thanks to all of our guests. Ed Flash Ference, Bill BLF Bash Freeman, Joel Frensdorf, John Gorman, Donna Halper, David Helton, Jeff Kinsbach, Michael Shesky, Deddy Sanders, and Shelly Style. Special thanks to two guys, John Gorman and Michael Shesky. They spent a lot of time with us and supplied much of the additional audio that you hear. Additional supporting audio also supplied by Denny Sanders, Joel Frensdorf, Art Volo, and Matt Wardlaw. Additional production audio from Universal Music Group and SoundSnap. A couple of additional contributions that we need to acknowledge. We have Alex Bevin's The Buzzard Song, that's our closing tune. And also, shout out to Gray Perry and the band Soul Tour for the use of their song, It's True, here in this episode. If you like, there's a few more ways we'd recommend that you learn more about this great radio station. John Gorman's book, The Buzzard, and Michael Shesky's two books, Cleveland Radio Tales and Radio Days. If you can help it, do not buy it off Amazon. Support a great Cleveland publisher, grain company by using the link in the show notes. This season's podcast cover art is an original creation by the artist David Helton. He's got some great merch and buzzard shirts for sale. We've got links to those stores in the show notes too. Time for some disclaimers. We are not affiliated, associated, authorized, endorsed by, or in any way officially connected with 100.7 WMMs, its ownership, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Any audio, individuals, product names, logos, brands, and other trademarks or images featured on or referred to within this podcast or its website are the property of the respective trademark and copyright holders. Appearance on this podcast does not imply endorsement. Final notes, if you haven't already, leave us a five-star rating and share this podcast with a friend or family member. For Westlore Media, I'm Vince Tornero. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for me to punch out